right, won't you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. It's a good name, my son's name. Ezekiel, we're going to be picking up from chapter number 44. Um, how many of you have ever heard a sermon out of Ezekiel before? I thought so, not many of you. It's one of the books that most people like to avoid in the Bible because it's a little bit cray-cray. All right, there are some things and imagery in here that people think, what was he smoking when he had this moment? Um, but I'm going to hopefully and helpfully explain to you some of what's going on in the book of Ezekiel because I believe this book, which is a prophetic book, is still speaking prophetically to us today. Prophetic simply means a revelation of God's heart. That's all that prophecy means. It's, it's not weird fortune telling. It is just a revelation of what God thinks about you right now, what God has always thought about you in the past, and what God is thinking about you in the future. That's what prophecy is. And we're going to pick up in chapter 44 and verse 15. Okay, I want you to know that God's about getting us ready to move into a new place of adoration and devotion to Him. That's what worship was all about today, and that's what I'm going to be speaking about today. Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 15. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the people of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me and to minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God, the best bits. They shall enter my sanctuary and they shall approach my table to minister to me. And they shall keep my charge. And when they enter into the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments and they shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within the gates of the inner court um, and within. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their heads, um, sorry, around their waists, and they shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. <laughs> they were not allowed to sweat in the Middle East. Jesus helped them. <laughs> and when they go out into the outer courts to the people, they shall put off um, the garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers and they shall put on other garments lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. They shall not shave their heads or let their locks grow long. They shall surely trim the hair of their heads. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. They shall not marry a widow or a divorced woman, but only virgins of the offspring of the house of Israel or a widow who is the widow of a priest. They shall teach my people. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the common. And they will show them how to distinguish between unclean and clean. Lord Jesus, help us. In a dispute they shall act as judges, and they shall judge it according to my judgments, and they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed feasts, and they shall keep my Sabbaths holy. 
They shall not defile Sabbath, sorry, they shall not defile themselves by going near to a dead person. However, for a father or a mother, for a son or a daughter, or for a brother or an unmarried sister, they may, they may defile themselves. And after he has become clean, they shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes into the holy place and into the inner court to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord. This shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance. And you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his words. I am their possession. Ezekiel is a prophet who is also a priest, and he's been set apart to be a priest to God, to minister to God. And on the day of his inauguration, um, Israel is under siege by a king from a Babylonian empire and leads the Israelites into captivity because Israel has given its heart to other gods. It's followed other idols. It's, it's uh, intermarried with the culture around them. It has become a people who have committed spiritual adultery. And rather than going to the one who is their God, they have flirted and given themselves to other gods. And the result is that God, in his great grace and wisdom, gives them over to the desires of their own heart. I, I want to tell you there is a theology that God is, loves pouring out judgment upon people, that he's quick to judge people. But I want to tell you the worst kind of judgment that we see consistent throughout Scripture is not the judgment where God inflicts pain upon someone. It is the judgment of God giving us over to our own desires. Help me, Jesus, just a little bit here, because very often we think we know better than God, and God goes, well, then go on. And then we begin to see things go wrong, and Israel gets led into captivity because they have given their hearts and their affections over to other gods, and they've defiled the temple. And Ezekiel is by the river in Babylon, and he begins to get caught up in a heavenly vision. And he sees the glory of God come in, which is unusual because the glory of God was only ever found in the temple. But here they are in a foreign land in captivity, and God's glory shows up. I've got good news for you. God's glory is going to show up beyond a church building in places that you least expected because God is about redeeming everything everywhere. I'm going to preach myself happy today because this is an important word. And he gets this encounter, and what he sees is an eschatological picture. He sees the end, or God's purposes in the end, and he sees that a few thousand years ago in the Middle East at a river. He has this encounter, and he sees something of God's eternal purposes on display in the most beautiful way, and he sees two things. He sees the restoration of the temple, and he sees the restoration of the priesthood. I want to tell you, one of the best things you can do in the place of difficulty, in the place of being formed and shaped through suffering, 
is not to forget the promises of God, but to lean into the prophetic purposes of God and say, show me what you're about to do. Many of us get overwhelmed by our circumstances and by our sufferings and by our difficulties that we forget that God has spoken a word and that his kingdom is breaking in on us right now. The prophetic words and encounters that you have are meant to be anchors even in seasons of difficulty and pain. How many of you know prophecy in hindsight doesn't help anybody? And so when God begins to speak about your future, when God begins to speak about his purposes that are eternally at work in you and through you, he does so because he wants you to understand that you need to keep your eye on the promise even when it's real difficult. And we see that Ezekiel has this encounter, and in this encounter, uh, numerous visions begin to unfold. And he sees the first vision it's the throne of God, and it is wild. It is faces, four faces with other faces, wheels within wheels, lightnings. It is crazy. I want to tell you that the throne of God, when we begin to see it be established, it is crazy wild. It's not predictable, it's not neat, and it doesn't fit anybody's religious box. And he has this encounter and we see a number of these unfolding visionary encounters. If you do a study of the book of Ezekiel, it's kind of crazy. How many of you know that Ezekiel levitated? Some of you are like, really? The Bible says that Ezekiel was lifted by the lock of his hair, lifted up, and put onto a mountaintop. I want to see that movie. And the underlying themes as we get to particularly round about year in the chapters 40 and onwards is the understanding of God's desire and his end time purpose to restore two things. His temple, the place of worship, the place of his presence so filling that temple that his glory is revealed. That the substance, the essence of who he is, the revelation of who he is, becomes the most intoxicating thing for you. That you begin to see something of God's presence and his glory in such a beautiful way that you are undone. Every time somebody had an encounter with the glory of God as it was made manifest, it left them undone. Pretty much like what I was having a moment in worship there. But the second thing that he does and that he sees is the restoration of the priesthood. Now, when you do a study throughout Scripture, from Eden to Revelation, the two themes that you will see run throughout Scripture is that God's desire is to restore worship. God's desire is to restore his temple. And God's desire is to restore, restore his people as priests unto him. The first temple that we see is in Eden. The first place we see of the revelation of his glory is Eden. And the first thing that happens is men are shut, women are shut out of that experience of intimacy and beauty and divine encounter. And we see the complete and utter brokenness of humanity because of sin. And then you'll see all the way through 
Ah, one after that, every temple motif, every moment we see that God can, he is wanting to restore priests and he's wanting to restore worship. Incidentally, one of the things that's fascinating as you do the study is that every time priests neglected their duty, the nation went crazy. Every time priests neglected their duties, the nation lost its orientation towards God. I want to suggest to you that every time priests lose their ability to serve God, the church begins to degrade. The church begins to lose its purpose. The Bible says in 1 Peter, I think it is, or 2 Peter, I need to try and remember, in Revelation chapter number 5, I think it is, that we now are all priests. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are a priest. You are a priest in the house of God. A little bit later in Ezekiel chapter um, I think it's 47. You see this moment where Ezekiel sees the glory of God. He sees the magnificence of God's essence, who he is, the revelation of the depth and the weight of his character. In fact, the word glory means weight. It means the weight of who God is, the, the essence of his goodness coming upon us. He gets this revelation, and what he sees is a river that flows from the throne. I want to tell you, that I believe that when John records that moment with Jesus in John chapter 7 and verse 37, and he says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he spoke of the Spirit, whom the disciples had not yet received, but would receive it a little bit later after Pentecost. Here's the thing, when Jesus said that every single Jewish era would have thought about Ezekiel's prophecy, that there is in the temple a throne that is established upon mercy and upon righteousness or justice and righteousness, and from that throne of glory, from that throne of beauty, from that throne of splendor, from that throne of unapproachable light, from that throne flows a river. I want to tell you, worship was never simply meant to be um, vertical. It was never simply meant just to end with a vertical expression. That when you worship God right, it has to have a horizontal expression. The river in the temple comes from God, but it begins to flow, the Bible says, through the nations. And it's along its banks, there are trees for the healing of the nations. In the river, there is all kind of diversity of life and energy. And in fact, the Bible seems to indicate the further away you get from a physical temple, the more powerful the river begins to flow. And that was fulfilled right there in John chapter 7, when Jesus, standing outside the temple, I mean, it is quite a scary thing. By the time Jesus gets, we see the second temple having been restored in Israel. Problem was the Ark of the Covenant, the very place of resting of God's presence, could not be found because the people of Israel had lost it. And here all these people, these priests, are performing function, but there is no presence. 
And it's in that context that Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me because I'm the new temple. And when you drink from me, you become a temple so that wherever you walk, even when you walk away from this old temple that no longer houses the presence of God, wherever you go, there's a river that's going to flow. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that the aim of worship is not simply a vertical encounter. The aim of worship is a vertical encounter with God that leads to a horizontal impact in the world around you. The Bible says this, that his throne is established upon righteousness and mercy. In other words, if your worship does not lead you to care for the poor, the broken, the marginalized, those who are on the sidelines, you're not worshiping properly. Mm -hmm. I believe with all my heart today that God is calling worshipers who will be gathered around his throne in order to be scattered from his throne. And Ezekiel sees this revelation of the glory of God coming back. But in the midst of that revelation, he sees the restoration of the priesthood. The Bible says that we now are a kingdom of priests. We are royal priesthood. I want you to know in this church, we do not believe in a hierarchy of clergy and laity. There is no such thing in the Bible because every single person here is a priest if you are a Christian. Some of you are like, really? Yes, it's, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And God desires in Ezekiel to paint a picture to Ezekiel about the kind of priesthood that he's looking for. The reason he desires this is because he knows that the right kind of worship is not in order to stroke his ego but it is for the benefit of his people. When we worship God rightly, we do so in a way that causes his presence to be amongst us and his blessing naturally follows, but what's more, his glory is revealed through us. Every other deity in those days would require the kind of sacrifices that meant you'd have to go up to a high mountain, and then you walk away from the mountain and hope you appease the deity. I've got such good news for you, dear friends, that the presence of God in who he is and what he desires is not to be on a lofty mountain somewhere else, but to be slap bang in the middle of his people, Emmanuel, God, with us. In fact, when you study the Ark of the Covenant, it was not to be put on a mountain somewhere disconnected from people, but it was to be in the full view. That's what the Bible talks about in David's tabernacle, to be in the full view of people because he always wanted to be amongst his people. He so wanted to be amongst his people that he confined himself to a little box called the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. And I believe today God wants to speak to us about the restoration of the priesthood because it's in the right worship that there is an exchange of his nature and grace that transforms us because what we behold, we become like. 
The key to holiness is not a just say no campaign. The key to holiness is a beholding campaign because when we behold him, we become like him. We are being changed from that very image from one degree of glory to another. When we get the priesthood right, we get the glory right. And Ezekiel has this encounter and you'll see that the encounter is about the Levitical priesthood. Now, Levites were a special tribe that God chose. Levi's like, yay, that's me over there. A special tribe that God chose for himself. They were his possession. And you see this moment here that God restores to Ezekiel what the priesthood should be like. These are a reiteration of what God spoke in Deuteronomy and in Numbers to the Levitical priesthood. And I want you to notice that the primary role of the priesthood is to be Godward-faced, not people-facing. Mm. Help me, Jesus. We have got this wrong in the modern-day Western church where we have orientated the priesthood to be about meeting each other's needs as the primary way we do church, when actually the Bible says you are a holy priesthood being built together to be a new and living temple, and that the primary disposition should not be what we do for each other. It should be our Godward-facing obsession with Him his presence and his glory. The Bible says that God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. I want you to notice that the only seeker that we should be satisfying in our church is God. And you'll see this primary phrase throughout the scripture, both in Ezekiel and then many different places, that the people... The tribe of Levi, the, the, the Levitical priesthood, would it be a people who ministered to the Lord. I've said this before, the orientation of the temple was so that the back of the priests were consistently toward the people and their face was consistently looking to the Ark of the Covenant. They wanted to get to the presence. They wanted to get to his glory. Everything else was second place. Help me, Jesus. We must be a people of one thing. And you would see three different aspects of these priests. You'd see the priestly helpers. They were the kind of people who all they did was serve in the house of God in order to create an environment in which the offering would get burnt up in which the glory of God would come. And everything they did was orientated to make sure that the house of God was ready. And then you would get the priestly ministers who served in the temple, and their job primarily was to make sure that the lampstand was consistently burning. Their job was to make sure that the showbread or the bread of the presence was fresh. I wish I had time to teach on that. They had to make sure 
that in every aspect of the priestly service they were leaning towards God. They had to make sure that the incense that was being offered to God, which are the prayers of the saints, was continually burning. I just want to say we are not called to be a house of worship. We are called to be a house of prayer for all nations. There is a difference. We can orientate ourselves in a way that, that objectifies our preference of worship style and think that that's church. But Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And I believe prayer contains worship 100%. But it orientates our hearts and our affections to the agenda of heaven rather than to what we need. I will move on very quickly. And these priestly ministers will make sure that the incense was being lifted up. And not only that, there will be one priest called the high priest who had the privilege and the fearful job of getting into the Holy of Holies beyond that veil that Katya spoke about in order to offer sacrifice. I want to tell you, the Bible says in Hebrews that the template, the pattern of the temple is the pattern of the heavenly temple and it reveals to us how we are to approach heaven, how we are to approach God, right? Hebrews tells us that. And I want to say to you, there's something about us understanding our role as priests in the area of outrageous, scandalous, over-the-top, crazy kind of praise, who cares who's watching kind of worship. Because last time I checked, worship is not your personality type. If, if we really believed the Bible, we would do what the psalm says. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Yes. Clap to God, all ye people. Those are not serving suggestions. They are biblical commands. People get, oh, I'm telling you, hyping up all the people. No, this is called worship. And the priest would have to cleanse himself. I'm so glad that Jesus is our high priest who sprinkled his own blood on the floor courts of the temple. Because you see what the priests would have to do as they got, before they got to the candle, uh, to the candlestick in order to make sure that the seven lampstands were burning, they'd have to sprinkle blood and walk to get there. And then they'd have to get to the showbread and sprinkle blood and walk to get there because they had to walk on the sprinkled blood of an innocent lamb in order to approach the presence. And Jesus, the perfect high priest, and sacrifice, Hebrew tells us, walk straight into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling not the blood of a lamb, sprinkling not the blood of a bull, but his own blood as he goes into the courts of heaven, making a way open so that we, the new priesthood, all have access into that glory. And he sprinkles blood on the mercy seat. You see, the Bible says so clearly that Jesus set his face toward the cross. And the cross in that moment became the revelation of glory, the Bible says. So that as he got to the cross, fixing his eyes back to the people, crowds following him, I'm getting to the ark. I'm getting to the glory. His most glorified moment on earth was that moment when he in his body was split open so that we now all can come in. 
You see, we simply think that the cross of Jesus is about dealing with our sin. No, it's not. The cross of Jesus is about a new priesthood being restored, having access to glory. Shika bazooka. Somebody help me. I'm about to get Pentecostal in here. The priest had to get clean. I'm so glad we're clean. I want to tell you, if you came in here as a Christian, still dealing with sin, still dealing with guilt over your sin, I want to tell you, the blood means you are clean. The blood speaks a better word. The pulsating, warm blood of Jesus is on the throne. It is eternal. The lamb that was slain is eternally slain. There's never a moment that that blood will dry up. There's never a moment that that blood will get cold. There's never a moment that that blood will evaporate. Somebody help me here. If, you, if your face can't be moved by this great news, you probably need to get saved again. And the priest had to be clean. And they had to make sure that there was oil in the lamp. Give me oil in my lamp. How's your oil doing? The job of the priest was to make sure that the living presence of the Holy Spirit, the inflaming fire of God was on display for everyone to see. I want to tell you, I can't do church without him. I can't do church without the Holy Spirit. My orientation must be to him. I, I sing out of tune. I, I, I clap just without any rhythm. I'm the only black man with no rhythm. And I don't give a continental proof. Am I allowed to say that? I did not say that. Sorry, I just did. Do you know how come? Because there's fire in my soul. We have made, ch- we have made worship about our preference. Not only that, you, you were to make sure that the presence, the bread of the presence was fresh all the time. I, I want to tell you there is something about feasting on the word of God's presence that you have to waste time on. I want to tell you it is not a good enough excuse for you to tell me, oh, I'm not that intellectual. Oh, I'm not that theological. Because I want to tell you it is every believer's responsibility, not the responsibility of Katia Adams or Julian Adams or any other pastor. It is your responsibility to be shaped, formed, and developed by Scripture, which is the living bread and presence of God Almighty. Oh, I'm not that theological. Build a bridge and get over it. Read the Bible. There are so many tools out there. It's going to require a time that we waste with him. He's lovely. He's magnificent. There's nothing like reading Scripture and seeing Jesus in the Scripture. A priesthood without the living presence of God's word, his bread of life, is a priesthood that will be taken captive by every other thing. Not only that, they were to offer incense, prayers, 
Oh, Jesus, help me. We've got a new dog called Oliver Adams. And Jesus really has to help me. And he has by getting us a dog because at 5 o'clock I'm awake. And do you know what I'm doing in the, in the kitchen while I'm waiting for him to go for his little potty break? Not only am I practicing the gift of self-control at that point, but I'm praying in tongues. Not just for the dog now, <laughs> but for everything else. I've got a whole day that I've got to face. I want you to notice when I'm talking about worship, I'm not talking about the gathered, although this is part of that. I'm talking about a lifestyle of a priesthood that is orientated towards him. Brothers and sisters, are you being a priestly priest? I press on because I need coming for a landing. What I love about this is that the Bible says they had to wear clothes. Number one, they couldn't get their drunk. They couldn't get intoxicated. They couldn't have wine. They couldn't have their senses impacted by an intoxicating substance. Here's why. When your senses are impacted by anything other than his presence, your affection is pulled away from him. They weren't allowed to even sweat in the prayer. I love this bit. This is the most arbitrary bit in this verse. They are in the middle. How many of you all have been to the Middle East? I've been. I've been in the desert. I know what this is. It is impossible for me not to sweat in the desert. They had to wear clothes. They didn't sweat. Do you know how come? Because God wanted them to realize that your act of worship is not something that you can maintain through the arm of your flesh. It has to be empowered by the presence of his spirit. And I'm so glad that Jesus Christ empowers our worship. It is in view of his mercy that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And the reason, one of the reasons why God put all of these things in was that he understood that if the priests knew how to worship, they would be able to instruct God's people. I want to tell you something here. This is so profound. When I began to read this, I began to realize that the aim of worship, the Bible says, is to teach the people the difference between the common and the holy. If your worship and revelation of God does not lead you to honor the holy and reject the common, something is wrong with your worship. Oh, don't let me get on this one. We've got so many churches that are moving away from biblical truth and calling that which is evil holy. Calling that which is common holy. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, there is a revelation of the holiness of God that is coming back to the church. That he is completely other. He is completely outside of time. He's completely outside of human ability. He's completely outside of your opinion of him. In fact, he doesn't give a hoot about your opinion. He is holy. He is other. He is set apart. He is glorious. And I tell you, when you begin to see him rightly, you'll be able to make sense of the cultural wars that we are in. Because when you love him, 
He'll want what he wants. I want to tell you, the holiness of God is being restored, not in a fearful way, because the beautiful thing is we now have access, and even in our sin, the Bible says you are to come boldly before the throne of grace. But here's the thing, what the holiness of God does for the believer is to take the commonness of your body, the very instrument that was once used for evil, he anointed and he sets it apart to be holy unto him. I want you to understand, you are not your own. You have been bought with the price. You are his possession. You don't get the final say on what you do with your body. You don't get the final say on what you do with your finances. You don't get the final say on what you do with your relationships. Somebody help me here, because I'm preaching the truth. Because you're bought with a price. You are holy to the Lord, just like the candle lamps, just like the showbread, just like the instruments that they used to serve in the temple, having been set apart from everything else, having been set apart from any other use. It is holy unto the Lord. You are now holy unto the Lord. And the aim of worship is that worship teaches us how to honor the holy and how to reject the common. And we've reduced worship to common expressions and equating that with the anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate worship leaders, give them awards, give them all manner of things just like the world. We cannot reduce worship to style. We cannot reduce worship to convenience. We cannot make worship common. It is not the genre of music that you prefer. It is not the lyrical words that make a good worship song. It is the posture of our heart directed to him and his glory. I wonder if the worship team could just come up very quickly, please. I want to tell you that we cannot reduce what is holy to being common. Ezekiel's picture of worship is about a priesthood whose Godward faced, who's, who's looking to him in his glory. Alex, you can just start playing just a little bit. And there's something in my heart today, you know, I, I'm known as a prophetic voice all over the world. But I want to tell you prophetically what Boston needs. It's not a house of intellect. It's not another woke voice trying to fight for justice. It's not another great theological discourse. I want to tell you, if your theology doesn't lead you to worship him more passionately, with your body, with your mind, and with your spirit, all it's done is make you more religious and grumpy. What Boston needs are people who are priests in God's temple. That what we're building is a house for God. That what we gather to on a Sunday is to Him. I'm so glad people are getting saved in our community because we want that. But ultimately, 
our worship will lead to a horizontal expression wherever we find ourselves, whether it's here on a Sunday or whether it's at work on a Monday. If you're not having a horizontal impact, you're probably not worshiping right. Ultimately, what Boston needs is to get a full revelation of God and His glory in the temple called the church. The people devoted in worship to Him. And here's why. Ultimately, the aim of worship, the posture of worship, it's not just about growing a church. It's not just about getting people saved, although I, I pray that we will in, in loads and loads. But ultimately, the reason we are a priesthood is because he is our inheritance. <laughs> the king of the universe is our inheritance. He is our portion. He is our reward. Do you know when, when Abraham has his encounter with God and God gives him a commission saying, I'm going to bless you. Do you know what God says to him? He says, Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward. Who cares about the nations when you've got me? Because when you've got me, you've got everything. You see, the kind of worship that God's looking for is an all-out pursuit of Him. I find it fascinating. The story in Luke chapter 15, the son, the older, grumpy, religious son. He's right there and he says, I didn't get a party. You know what the father says to him? Son, I am with you always. The son didn't realize he had the greatest party planner in the universe with him. The reason I worship him is because I found the pearl of great price. I found the one who is altogether lovely. He is altogether wonderful. He is holy and set apart. He's magnificent and glorious. Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 16. I invite you to stand as I read this. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lion, <laughs> the Lord is my chosen portion. He's our great reward. That's why we give him devotion. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart he instructs. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol 
or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Oh, brothers and sisters, when we see him rightly and we minister to him in sacrifice and we minister to him in getting the oil of the Holy Spirit burning in us, when we feast on his word to him, when we pray and we come close to him and we minister to him, we set our affection on him. We orientate our sight, our light of sight to Him and Him alone. This is the Sunday Morning Podcast from The Table, Boston, where you'll find the latest teachings from our Sunday meetings. Find more from us at thetableboston.com.